0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're back. After some time off, we're back to expound. Let me tell you again what this is all about before we pray. We want to expand your knowledge of the truth of God by explaining to you the Word of God. That's what Expound is all about. We want it to be interactive. We want it to be enjoyable. We want it to be congregational. It's a chance for you to text questions in. If you're watching by live streaming, you can also do that. You can write on your computer or text them in. We don't promise that we'll answer all of the questions, simply because I don't know all the answers. No, I'm just kidding. We look at it, and um, it's not like I nix them. They they feed them to me from in the back. And and when they come up, usually we take them. But uh, it's a way to make it interactive. So it's a little bit different. We're verse by verse, line upon line, through every book of the Bible. We've covered Genesis so far, Exodus. We're in Matthew tonight. And then we'll go back to the Old Testament, back to the New Testament. We're covering the whole counsel of God this way. Now, again, I remind you, there's levels at which you can participate. The most basic level, the entry level, I would call it, is you just show up. You just sort of come and you hang out. You could come and hang out with the Bible open. Or you could kind of come and hang out like this the whole time. It's up to you. We don't judge you if you want to do that. And we don't think you're more spiritual if you have a big old Bible. It's great if you have a Bible because you can follow along and you can read and hear the explanation and you'll probably remember where that section of scripture is in time to come to reference that again. But that's up to you. But then there's even deeper levels. You can join an online social media community in Twitter and Facebook. We can text you and we can... Uh, email you different reminders during the week of how to apply it, thus making the Word of God deeper in your heart. Then you can go even deeper than that. We can send you study guides. And if you even want to go deeper than that, you could come early on Wednesday nights and join the Come Prepared group that gathers together, prays and talks through the different things God has shared with the entire group And these groups are able to then really help process the information where we've been and where we're going and really saturate themselves in the truths of God to make an impact. So all the way from that (laughs) to going really deep and coming early, it's up to you. Um, But it's a way that we can become a discourse community, we call it. Just remember that term, a discourse community where we're talking about it together, as well as a textual community, a community of people that love Jesus Christ and that we have been formed as believers around the text, the revelation that God has given in His Word. So that just is sort of introductory to what Wednesday night is is all about. It's more than just a midweek Bible study. We see it as God speaking to us through His Word. So with that in mind, turn in your Bibles. To Matthew, chapter eight. You're already turned there. Great, Matthew eight, and uh, we we didn't finish chapter eight, and that's why we can't just immediately go into chapter nine. We hope to get into chapter nine tonight. Uh, I'm prepared to finish chapter nine, but I'm not prepared to sit here two three hours. I'd love to, but we have commitments to children and to you, etc. So we'll see how far we go. That's how we take it. We Pick up where we left off, and um, we'll take up our hour. And that being said, let's pray and get started. Father, dear, precious Father, Peter said to us who have been redeemed, you are precious. Lord, you know, and you alone know, who we are, what we face what we struggle with, what we stumble over, what we're good at, what we're lousy at. And Lord, you are not only able, but you are prepared and wanting to minister to us from this ancient document, but always contemporary living book, your truths. And the truth, Jesus said, would set us free, and I pray you would set us, your people, or some who are gathered here who are soon to become your people. Set us free, Lord, as we expand our knowledge of your truth by the explanation of your word. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would burn within us just like the disciples' hearts burned on the road to Emmaus. In Jesus' name, amen. Ah, It's good to be back with you tonight. It really is. Hey, listen. Matthew is all about telling us why Jesus Christ is the Messiah of Israel. The Jews had anticipated the Messiah would come on the scene. They were looking for Him. They were anticipating Him greatly. One of the Jewish prayers sometimes said daily was this prayer, an affirmation prayer. I believe in the coming of the Messiah, and even though he tarries, yet I will wait for him every coming day. Matthew comes along and says, well, let me tell you, you don't have to wait any longer. The Messiah has come. He is here. And let me tell you why he's here. And he gives us, at least up till now, five reasons to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew shows us that Jesus is the Messiah genealogically. Showing that he has the legal root system, if you will. The pedigree coming from Abraham, fulfilling all of the promises in the genealogical legal records, presenting that to us in the first part of his book. He proves it to us genealogically. Number two, he demonstrates that Jesus is the Messiah prophetically. He goes back and he shows how the prophets predicted this and that and something else. For example, it's Matthew who says, uh, Isaiah chapter 7 told us, and here is the fulfillment of that, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And you will call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Matthew tells us that prophetically, Jesus had always been anticipated by the prophetic scriptures, by the prophets. It was Matthew who reminds us of the prophecy in Micah chapter 5 that Jesus, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. It's Matthew who tells us that John the Baptist coming on the scene Fulfilled the prediction of Isaiah chapter 40, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight paths for the Lord. So, genealogically, prophetically, and then Matthew says, let me show you that Jesus Christ was the Messiah morally. And he paints the picture of Jesus down at the Jordan River being baptized to identify with sinners then going to a mountain to be tempted by the devil and withstanding that temptation. So he has the moral fiber, the moral qualifications to be Israel's Messiah. Number four, he has shown us that Jesus shows himself to be the Messiah instructively. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the subject matter, the King and the Kingdom of God. Here is the Messiah giving with all messianic authority the precepts for the kingdom. And it blew people away. When Jesus was done at the end of chapter 7, the crowd marveled. It says they marveled because He spoke as one having authority, not like the scribes. And fifth, and this is where we are tonight. He shows that Jesus is the Messiah miraculously. Matthew gives us 10 miraculous signs that irrefutably point that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Nobody else has done these things and they were predicted by the prophets themselves. And so even Jesus himself said, either believe who I am based on what I said or at least believe me for the sake of the works Themselves, The works that I do, they testify as to who I am. So we're right in the middle of that. Chapters 8 and 9 talk about those miraculous signs that Jesus is performing. We left off right around verse 23 of chapter 8. When Jesus is taking a boat ride, verse 23 now, When he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Our Lord and his disciples are traveling from one side of a lake called the Sea of Galilee, but it's really a lake 13 miles long by about 8 miles wide, They're going from one side, the northwestern side, over toward the eastern side. Back in 1986, I remember because it was the year my son was born, the Sea of Galilee receded so low that as one day a couple of... Kibbutz farmers were walking up and down the shores of the lake. They discovered something hard and something wooden, and they pulled out a 2,000-year-old boat. If you come with us to Israel, some of you have been with us to Israel. If you come with us this time, I'll take you over to the kibbutz called Ginosar, where that boat has been housed. It's about 26 and a half feet long by seven and a half feet wide, and it shows what a typical boat would have been like 2,000 years ago from the Roman times. It's called the Jesus boat. So it's not very big, and when you look at this boat, you think, "Those guys got in that little thing." Now, I told you before how the Sea of Galilee can be quite tempestuous. The storms can come up very suddenly, very violently, and that boat can be tossed around. And that is what is happening here. Suddenly, a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Now here's what's interesting linguistically. There's a couple of verbs that are in the imperfect tense. So let me paint the picture by the language itself. The waves kept coming over the boat. They kept coming over the boat. They kept coming over the boat. Jesus kept on sleeping and kept on sleeping and kept on sleeping. How do you sleep in a storm? Well, you either know the one who controls the storm or you're the one who controls the storm. Jesus fit category number two. He was God knew perfectly what was coming down the pike. He's asleep in the boat. The disciples wake him up. His disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. That little word, tempest, back in that first verse, verse 23, a tempest arose. It's the same Greek word that is often translated earthquake. Listen to the word. Here it is. Seismos. Does that sound familiar? Seismic. We get our term from seismos. A tempest, a seismic, a violent kind of a storm. It's a word that emphasizes just how enormous the storm was. Now here's a disciple. These disciples were fishermen. They, they had seen storms before, but nothing like this. Now, Jesus sleeping in the boat, to me, speaks of a couple of things. Number one, his humanity, and number two, his deity. On one hand, he was fully man, and he is weary in the service, healing, teaching, ministering. He's just tired, gets in a boat, falls asleep. That's humanity. Flip the coin, though, it also speaks of his deity. He's in total, sovereign, absolute control. And so he rests. Something else that occurred to me as I went through this. If you were to compare this storm and this crew with another storm the Bible mentions and another crew from the Old Testament, can you think of another storm where there was another crew that told somebody to wake up in a storm? Jonah. Jonah, the prophet of God, asleep in the boat, but not because he was sovereignly in control. He was just dead tired from disobeying God. He's asleep in the boat. The sailors have to wake him up and say, Dude, you got to wake up and pray to your God. We've been praying to our gods. It doesn't work. Jesus calms the storm. Jonah says, Throw me overboard into the storm. What a comparison. What a contrast. And... If anything, it reinforces something that Jesus said to his disciples on another occasion For I say unto you, a greater than Jonah is here. And perhaps those disciples were even thinking back to that storm. Now they said to him, verse 25 Lord, save us! We're going to die. We're perishing. We're going to die. We're kicking the bucket. Now, that's not true. It's natural that they feel that way. That's how you feel in a storm. That's how you feel in a trial. Lord, help! I'm going to die. It's over. The worst is happening. The truth is, they're safe, and they're not going to die. But it's natural to feel that, and it's natural to say that, in your time of affliction. But He said to them, verse 26... Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the wind. Same word as rebuking the demons. He rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Why are you so fearful, O you of little faith? Now remember that little sentence. Because fear is the opposite of faith. And faith is the opposite of fear. They're mutually exclusive. Faith and fear cannot dwell in the same heart. If you have fear, it's because you don't have faith. If you have faith, it will vanish your fear. It allows you to look into the midst of a storm and say, I'm not worried. I know the one who created this storm. And the worst that could happen is, it's my time. I'm going to gurgle a little bit and soon I'll be in glory. Or I'm going to learn a terrific lesson of faith. Faith and fear are mutually exclusive. He rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. So the men marveled saying, Who is this guy? My text says, Who can this be? But same difference. Who is this guy? That even the winds and, notice this, the winds and the sea obey him. Now they cried out for help, thus they expected help to come. But they didn't expect this to happen. Now watch this. This is a double miracle. Because typically, if a storm ceases, that if, is, if the wind stops, if you've ever been out to sea in a storm, when it's windy, once the wind goes through, once the storm goes through and it's calm, the water is not calm. The water, you're still bouncing around. There's still white caps for a long period of time. So calming the air is one thing, calming the sea is yet another miracle. He calmed the wind and the sea. They'd never seen this before. Even a passing temporary storm that blew through still left white caps bouncing the boats around. So they marveled. Wow, who is this guy? That even the wind and the sea will obey him. When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, some of the other New Testament writers call it the Gadarenes, named after the principal city, Gadara. Again, if you're with us this coming trip, we'll take you over to that city, Gadara. It's there on the eastern side. There met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, the original tomb raiders, exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from there, there was a herd of many swine feeding. At this point we have moved from the western side of the Sea of Galilee, the northwestern shore, where Capernaum, Jesus' headquarters, has been, to the eastern side. This is Gentile country. And the fact that swine are being herded, which is very non-kosher, shows the influence the Gentile world has had on that part of the Jewish population. It was an illegal trade. Jews would, would never do that. But now we have Gentile influence in this Galilee region. And there's, according to Mark, 2,000 herd of swine. That's where Jesus comes to. Now you look in verse 28 and it says, There met him two demon-possessed men. If some of you have read ahead and you've compared Scripture with Scripture, you might be a little bit puzzled because you're thinking, No, wait a minute. If I read this account in Mark or in Luke, it says there was one demon-possessed man. So you're going, maybe, maybe you're going, aha! Found a contradiction in the Bible. No, you didn't. We told you when we began our series in Matthew that the gospel writers will often provide a certain emphasis. And no doubt, of the two that are mentioned here by Matthew, one of them was more prominent than the other. Maybe one was sort of in the background, not saying anything. The other, the more prominent one, was the spokesperson. Matthew would want to include the fact that there were two and not mention just the one spokesperson or more prominent one because he's writing to a Jewish audience. And by the mouth of two witnesses, every testimony is established. So he wants you to know there were two, not one. And Matthew does like pairs. There are two here and two there. He does that a lot in his gospel. So there were two men. One of them was more prominent. It says they were demon-possessed, or literally demonized, coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. There is a supernatural world. We live in a natural world, a physical world, But there is a parallel universe. It's very real. This bothers some people because they say, well, you can't prove that. I never see them. I never see angels. I never see demons. I've never seen God. I never see spirits. But they're very real. Inasmuch... As right now there are pictures in this room and there are songs in this room and there are smallest bits of information in this room but you can't see them. But they're here. You could see them and you could hear them if you had the right receiver. You could tune into a frequency and you could see the pictures or you could hear the sounds but they're invisible unless you have the right receiver. There is a supernatural world. There is a world of evil, a demonic world ruled over by Satan, the will of Satan being carried on by a host of demonic beings. And Paul sort of addressed that in Ephesians when he said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual rulers of darkness in high places. Rankings of these angelic beings, these spiritual beings... They hate you. And they would love to destroy you. Jesus, speaking of the devil, said, Satan has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what he would love more than anything else, is to kill a person before that person would ever have a chance to receive Christ, and then to neutralize a follower of Christ, and make them stale and stagnant and not powerful and not rejoicing and and, and not on the... On the edge, so to speak. Just sort of blasé, just neutralize that person. He's out to destroy you. Now, he's been watching humans for thousands of years, so he's got us pretty wired. We're pretty basically the same, so he knows where our weaknesses are and tries to exploit them. But he does want to destroy. My mind goes back to my teenage years, to two boys. One named Richard Wilhite and one named Skip Heitzik. Ornery boys, curious boys, boys of whom the devil tried to destroy. He was successful with one. Richard Wilhite, my buddy, was always experimental, always up to no good. My mom said, don't hang around that guy. She was right. He did influence me, but I think I influenced him as well. I recall the times where he almost lost his life. One afternoon, both of us totally, totally stoned on LSD. I won't tell you about my trip, it's fruitless, but I'll tell you about his he runs out of the room we we're in goes onto a highway and charges into oncoming traffic felt totally invincible now i at least had the minimal presence of mind to see that he's going to be killed and i ran out grabbed him and drew him back that was satan trying to destroy his life sometime later after about with the occult and other drugs i gave my life to christ And one of the first people I reached out to was Richard Wilhite. I remember calling him on the phone because I knew that Satan was trying to get a hold of him and I thought, if God could only get a hold of this radical guy, he could radically be for Jesus. Richard didn't want to hear it. Richard hung up the phone after about an hour of my witnessing to him. I tried to call him back. He picked it up. I talked for a little bit. He hung it up. I called him back. He never answered the phone. Two days later, He was dead. He had been shot in the head. Because about a day before he got involved in a drug situation and was busted for about a half a million dollars worth of synthetic heroin in Southern California. It's as if something that night he responded to, because he didn't open his heart, he closed his heart. It was the enemy's chance, I'm going to destroy that young man. What a wake-up call that was to me. Now, I think I was awoken, but that was really a wake-up call. Satan wants... There is a real spiritual world filled with beings who try to neutralize you if you're a believer and destroy you if you're an unbeliever. See, it really wouldn't do Satan a lot of good to destroy you as a believer physically because he's going to send you right to heaven. So if He can make you stumble other people, if He can make you neutralized in your walk and be a bad example, it's a better tact. Here's a situation where these lives are practically destroyed. Now watch this. They cried out, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. Interesting thing about demons, they, they seem to not want to be homeless. That is, they're looking for a human host to inhabit. Or some physical host to inhabit. In Matthew 12, we'll get to it. Jesus said, when an unclean spirit leaves a man and goes through the dry places and he finds no rest, even though he seeks it. He says, I will return and go back to the house from which I have come. And when he goes back and he finds it empty and clean and all swept, he says, it says he, he brings with him seven other spirits worse than himself to inhabit that person that host, that human form, so that the latter situation, the latter part is worse than the first situation with that man. Satan is looking to inhabit a human person. He cannot inhabit a believer. I just want to lay that groundwork again. He can't do that. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He can mess with you. He can oppress you. He can tempt you. But he cannot possess you. So they asked Jesus, we want to possess. Now, now, here's something to note. These demons have enormous faith. Notice what they believe. Now, remember, James chapter 2 says, you say you believe in God, big deal. That's my (laughs) translation. James says, you say you believe in God, you do well. But even the demons believe and they tremble. What do the demons believe? Well, notice here what these demons believe. Number one, they believe in the existence of God. You're the Son of God. You don't have any demon who's an atheist. They're too smart. Every demon believes in God. Number two, these demons believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Calling Him the Son of God. That's a term of deification. Number three, they believe in future judgment. Have you come to destroy us before the time? The time will be Revelation 20, when Jesus will cast Satan and his minions into the lake of fire. That's the time of their destruction. The lake of fire. Temporarily, he's going to throw them into the lake of Galilee. But they believe in a future judgment. Number four, they believe in the power of prayer. They ask Jesus. And they have to ask Jesus. They have to get His permission. You know, demons only operate by permission. You know that. It's not like they decide, Okay, I'm going to take over today. They have to operate by God's permission. In the book of Job, Satan said, Hey God, if you can... Uh, God said... <laughs> I'm going to turn around. To Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody like him in all the earth. Satan said, Let, let me add him. Let me touch his physical body. And you'll discover he'll curse you to your face. God allowed Satan to wreak havoc in Job's life. Physically, with his family, but only up to a point. Only up to a point. He operates by permission. Satan understands that there is a God, that Jesus is God, that there is a future judgment, and he believes in the power of prayer. So when a person says, I believe in God, I believe Jesus is God. It's one thing to know that here. It's one thing to live that here. Or, Or let me put it another way. It's another thing to know it here. It's another thing to know it here in the legs. Because you put feet to your faith. Obeying what he said, doing what he said, following him. And he said to them, verse 32, Go! And when they had come out, they went in. When they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place. And I can show you today the spot, the area, because it's the only place around the Sea of Galilee where it's precipitous, it's steep. It's like a cliff almost. They ran violently down the steep place into the sea, and they perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Now, just a word about superstition over demons. I find that people today are superstitious about demonology and the whole area of demons. I find many Christians superstitious. And it's simply because there's a lack of biblical knowledge. And so they, they scare easily. Must be the devil. In ancient times, there was lots of superstition. In this time... Biblical times, there was superstition about the devil. It was believed by many people 2,000, 3,000 years ago that the air was inhabited by demons who sought to enter a human being and could gain access by something you would eat or something you would drink. A demon could attach itself to, like, your fried chicken. Certainly, your pork sandwich. Yeah, that's demon-possessed. I've seen some food that I wonder, yeah, that's demon-possessed. You don't want to touch that. But they actually believed that a demon could attach itself to the food and and gain entrance into your body. In ancient Egypt, the Egyptians identified 36 different parts of the human body and ailments that they said were caused by demonic or evil spirits. So they would name things like, Oh, that person has the the spirit of... um, Disease, the spirit of a fever, the spirit of insanity, the spirit of deafness, the spirit of dumbness. All superstitious. Ancient peoples equated all disease with demon possession. Some of them, not all the Jewish people, but a lot of the ancient peoples did that. Now it's interesting that today, even among Christians, I've heard things like, that that sister has the spirit of shopping binge. That's a cheap shot, brother. (laughs) It's not a demon. That's just the flesh. Or that person has the, the demon of whatever it might be. That's the flesh. These are superstitions. Yes, Satan is real. Yes, he's powerful. God is way more powerful. Let's just set the record straight. So, you never, ever need to run from him or be afraid of him. And so many stories of the Bible bear that out. In fact, I rather think Satan enjoys the press. When people talk about the devil, and I'm on a demon hunt, and my ministry is casting out demons, and that person has the demon of lust, or the demon of baldness, or the demon of shopping binge, or. <laughs> I think the devil goes, keep it up, man. You're giving me lots of limelight. I dig it. Okay, chapter 9. So, he got into a boat. Here, we're back in the boat. And he crossed over and came to his own city. Now he's going back to Capernaum. His own city is Capernaum. That's where he headquartered. Then, behold, or hey, check it out. Remember, that's what behold means. Hey, check this out. They brought to him a paralytic, a paralyzed man, lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, there's so much truth here. Many groups will try to say, you're not healed because you don't have enough faith. I don't read that this man had any faith at all. And Jesus doesn't notice their, uh, his faith. He's a paralyzed man. He probably had no faith. But the gospel of Matthew, as the other gospel accounts, point this out, that Jesus noticed these guys that brought the paralyzed man, they're the guys that had faith. Jesus was responding to what he perceived in them, not in the man who was diseased. So when somebody comes in and says, that person's not healed because he didn't have enough faith, I said, great, then you become the one who takes him to Jesus and will use your faith. To get the job done. You seem to have a whole world of it. So get the job done. (laughs) Now. If you read. Mark chapter 2. Mark tells us. That there were four guys that brought this man. And here's the rest of the story. They come to the house where Jesus is at. Probably Peter's house. That's where he's staying. Simon Peter's house. And they notice that Jesus is teaching. And there's like a swarm of people around the house. This long line. And. And they go i don't want to hang around and wait in line now i can sort of relate to that i hate lines i hate lines in restaurants i hate lines at disneyland i hate lines on freeways it's like if there's if there's a way i could just like cut through or go on the side i'd be up for that but then if people recognize me it wouldn't be a good thing so but i hate lines so these guys are thinking, I don't want to wait in line. So what they do, according to Mark, is they climb the roof. They get access on the roof with their paralyzed friend. They remove some of the tiles from the roof, and they lowered the man right in front of Jesus while he's teaching. Can you imagine? Here we are tonight, and we're looking up right here. Now, if this was Peter's house, what do you think Mrs. Peter was thinking about now? I knew he shouldn't have done this. Disrupted the whole meeting. Jesus saw their faith. These four guys thought, we've got to get him to Jesus. Now notice what he says. He said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Or, cheer up, man. Be courageous, would be another translation. Your sins are forgiven you. Why does Jesus say that? Here's a guy who's withered, he's paralyzed, he can't move. And Jesus looks at him and says, Hey, cheer up, man. Your sins are forgiven. It almost sounds cruel. Why does he say that? Let me give you three reasons why. Number one, because of prior thinking. Number two, because of priorities. Number three, because of power. Let me explain. The prior thinking and the thinking of many Jewish people, including scribes and Pharisees, were that if you have a disease, if you're sick, if you're paralyzed, it's because there's sin in your life. Malady equals not being right with God. There's something going on that we can't see that you're involved in or we're involved in, and this is a punishment of God. Remember back in the Old Testament in the book of Job when Job's friends came to him and started counseling him? Remember that? And one of the guys named Eliphaz, the Temanite, remember him? Eliphaz looks at Job who's suffering. He's withering away and he says, Who being innocent ever perished? As if to say, this is a universal fact, dude. If you were a righteous person, you wouldn't be suffering this. Obviously, you've sinned greatly. You're not innocent. Now, in in thinking this way, in this wrong kind of thinking... This was their way of getting out of any responsibility to help people like this. I'm not going to help you. You're cursed by God. I won't, I won't dare interfere with that. So they would happily walk by people like this and have nothing to do with them. Because their theology was so messed up, it allowed them to do that. So number one, prior thinking. Number two, Jesus said, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you because of priorities. What was it that this man needed more than anything else? Well, if you were to ask his friends, what would they say? That he, yeah, that he can walk. What he needs more than anything else is a physical healing so that he can physically walk. That's what he needs. That's why we're here. It's interesting that that's how many of us think. We think that this person's greatest need is a physical need. He needs to be physically healed. Really? That's not Jesus' priority. Oh, Jesus certainly touched physical bodies. The Bible's filled with those kind of examples. But the fact that the first words out of Jesus' mouth to a paralyzed man is, your sins are forgiven, shows us the greatest priority in a person's life is that their sins be forgiven. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world or a physical healing and loses his own soul? There are many benefits to Christianity. Some have been orphanages, hospitals, mercy ministries that have gone out all over the world in the name of Jesus to help people. We've been at the forefront historically, traditionally for years. But I usually don't get involved in any group who refuses to, along with giving out food and medical supplies, etc., refuses to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, well, we're preaching the gospel with, with our, our actions, and if necessary, we'll use words. It's always necessary to use words. The gospel is the word of the Lord. So to heal a person, to make a person well-fed so that they can hear the truth and go to heaven is a wonderful thing. But to feed a person, to heal a person, and then that person dies and faces a Christless eternity, you're not doing them any any good at all. You're just prolonging the inevitable. So the first, because of prior thinking, because of priorities, here's the third reason. Because of power. Watch this. At once some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. Now notice where they said this. Where did they say it? In themselves. They didn't say across the room, Hey, Shlomo! <laughs> did you hear what this dude just said? He's blaspheming. They didn't say it out loud. They thought it in their minds. Jesus knew what they were thinking. They were thinking, this man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Boy, how did you think these guys felt when Jesus sort of exposed them publicly? Hey, I know exactly what you're just thinking. Here's what you just thought. Be be very uncomfortable to be around somebody like that. Why do you think evil in your hearts? Now listen to this question. For which is it easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled. Some translations say they were filled with phobos, phobia, fear, like, whoa, whoa and glorified God who had given such power to men. Okay, let's answer the question. Which is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, I suppose it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. Because nobody sees that. It's an internal work. You can say to anybody, your sins are forgiven. How can you prove they are or not? So it's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, it's harder to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, because if the person doesn't, you're a fraud. So it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But here's the point. Both are impossible for any human being to do. A human can't forgive sins. A human can't heal a disease like this. Both are impossible for men. Both are possible with God. And if you can say one, you can say the other. If you can say, rise, take up your bed and walk, you'll be able to say your sins are forgiven. Any person who can say, "Um, just a minute, walk, and the guy walks, that person, that person has the authority to say your sins are forgiven. Because the miracle, the outward miracle, the outward power demonstrates the inward authority. That's the point here. Jesus demonstrates the inward authority by saying to the paralytic, Rise, take up your bed and walk. That you might know that the Son of Man has the power internally. Watch this externally. One proves the other. That you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Now here's something else interesting. And I know I'm going slow in Matthew but this may be the last time through Matthew. I don't know when the Lord's coming back and at the rate we're going anyway. So I don't want to miss things. This term, Son of Man, is a fascinating term. A term that the Jewish leaders would have been alerted to. It's an apocalyptic term. It's a kingdom term. It's a term that comes out of Daniel chapter 7. And those scribes and those Pharisees, they knew that. In Daniel 7, Daniel sees a vision of the Son of Man coming in clouds of glory. Something that Jesus will allude to, will speak of in Matthew 24. It's a a term of the kingdom coming to the earth. So what Jesus is saying is alert, alert. The kingdom of God has come into time and space because you have just seen the King heal and forgive. The Son of Man has power has authority. And he arose and he departed to his house, just rolled up his bed and booked it. And when the multitude saw it, they dropped their jaw, they marveled, they glorified God who had given such power to men. And as he passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax cl- uh, office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and he followed him. Want to know something Interesting. In all of the other accounts of Jesus calling Matthew, he's not called Matthew. It's called Levi. This is the only book that includes his name, Matthew. Of course, the book was written by Matthew. It could be that Matthew, I can't prove this, but here's a possibility. It could be that his original name was Levi, and his name was changed to Matthew. By Jesus now I say that to you because Jesus seemed to like to do that Simon's name wasn't Peter till Jesus said you know your name is Simon but I'm changing your name to Peter right James and John were called sons of Zebedee because Zebedee was their dad Jesus said I'm giving you a new name I'm gonna call you sons of thunder because you wanted to nuke that village He renamed them. I'm sure they bore that shame and that inside joke among the disciples the entire three and a half years of ministry. So Jesus liked to change names and it could be that his name Levi, his background name, his original name, was changed to Matthew by Jesus. Matthew means a gift from God. Now he's a tax collector. He's anything but a gift from God. That's how people viewed him. I, because I know this of Jesus, what Jesus looks at when he sees you is he identifies not just who you are now, but what you'll become once he gets a hold of you. He looked at Matthew and said, you big rip-off. I'm going to turn you into a gift from God. Not a person who takes gifts from people, but a gift sent from God to people. Because Jesus is so going to radically change Matthew's life, he'll never be the same. So it could be that Jesus gave him that name. Now look, this is what we know about Matthew slash Levi. Number one, fact number one, he was a Jew. If he has the name Levi, it's probably because he's from that tribe. That's a Jewish name. Gentiles never called their kids Levi. He was Jewish. If he was from the tribe of Levi, that means he was originally supposed to have been a priest. So it's probably safe to say he's from a priestly family, but he's a renegade. He didn't want the religious lifestyle. He wanted the money. Number two, he's a tax collector. So automatically he's on the blacklist. You know, if you were to meet somebody tomorrow and they shook your hand and they said, I'd like to talk to you. And they said to you, I'm from the Internal Revenue Service. Would you smile? Would you be set at ease? Would you give that person a hug? <laughs> no, you'd probably go, thanks, boom, run the other way. In those days, in those days, it was far worse. Tax collectors were so despised that one, one Roman writer says, I have never seen a monument erected to an honest tax collector. They were barred from synagogue worship. So that means this guy hadn't been in church for a long time. Kept from the synagogue. Put in the class of sinners, tax collectors and sinners. You'll see that in the New Testament. And that is because the method of taxation, if you think it's bad now in our country, really bad back then. Taxes were collected by the Roman government under a system known as tax farming. A franchise was sold to the highest bidder. The highest bidder was able to collect taxes for Rome, but could add as much as he wanted to add and keep it for himself and give the requirement to Rome. Now, here's the trouble. In those days, they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have newspapers. Okay, So you would know in one district what you were being taxed versus another district unless you traveled there a lot. You had to pay the tax. It was required by the Roman government or a stiff penalty would be enacted. So what was the tax rate? Well, number one, number one, just so you know, how, people, how, how this guy hated, people hated Matthew. Number one, there was the poll tax. The poll tax was the tax you pay for being alive in the Roman Empire. For being a person who is able to breathe Roman air, you pay a poll tax. If you're a male, age 16 to 65. If you're a female, age 14 to 65, you pay a poll tax. Number two was the income tax. That's a flat 10%. Add to that the poll tax. Add to that harbor tax, road tax, import tax. Add to that ground tax. Now, ground tax is, if you're a farmer, one-tenth of all your grain, one-fifth of all your grapes or wine is given, the amount is given to the Roman government. If you had a cart with wheels on it, There was a cart tax. You would be taxed, get this, based on the number of wheels that were on your cart. If you had four wheels, you were taxed more than if you had two or one. If you lived by the sea, or by a lake like Galilee, there was a fish tax. You would be taxed per fish. So this made Matthew very rich and very resented. They hated him. Jesus says, Matthew, a gift from God. He says, follow me. So we know that he is Jewish. We know that he was a tax collector. The third thing we know as we wind this up tonight, we know that he was decisive. He made a decision. Now watch this. Jesus passed on from there, saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. That's not a long sermon. It's not even an introduction. A single command. Follow me. So he arose and he followed Jesus. That's a decisive man. Now probably Matthew had heard about Jesus. Maybe he saw the miracles. Maybe he was there in the Sermon on the Mount. He's collecting the tax right outside of Capernaum. That was where his toll booth was. Oh, and by the way, if you come with us to Israel, I can show you the marker... That announces the tax booth from 2,000 years ago in Capernaum. They've uncovered a stone that talks about the toll booth, which is, we know Matthew was the one that kept that toll booth, and that inscription in that stone has been uncovered and it's there for you to see in Capernaum. Matthew had heard, Matthew had seen, Matthew had pondered. And one day Jesus walked up to him and said, I want you. Come, follow me. Luke's gospel tells us this. Matthew left everything he had, and he went and he followed Jesus immediately. Now, Matthew probably had more to give up than any of the other disciples. He was very wealthy, and if you work for the Roman government as a tax collector and you quit that job, you can never return to that job. It's over. He gave it all up. He gave it all up. He arose, and he followed Jesus. I, I was impressed a few years back, and I've been to India several times. But the, one of the first times I was in India. What impressed me the most is that when a believer comes to faith in Christ in India, there's this immediacy about being baptized. You, you never hear a person say, Yeah, I was saved like four years ago, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting baptized today. You never hear that. It's like, I just got saved about 20 minutes ago. I'm getting baptized now. I got saved yesterday. I'm getting baptized now. They take them and ask the Christians who are newly converted to walk through the streets of their village singing, take them down to the nearest body of water, typically a river, and they baptize them there. Number one, they want to announce to the world, hey, I'm not a Hindu anymore. I'm not a Muslim anymore. I'm following Jesus now, and I'm making it public. And so the whole You know, city goes out their window and sees this parade of people walking down the street, follows them down to the river to find out what's going on. And the preacher is down there, gives the gospel, baptizes the person. The first time I went to India, I met a man named Joy Kudichako. Brother Joy, he was called. And he he was appropriately named because he smiled all the time. He was so full of joy. And he told me his testimony. It was remarkable. He said, "I, I come from a Hindu background. My father is a Hindu priest. And I haven't seen my father, he said, for 20 years. Because when he found out that I had given my life to Jesus, he took a sacrificial knife and he tried to kill me. And I had to leave home and I haven't been home since. But he was filled with joy. He had left all to follow Christ... And he was filled with joy. Here's what I love about the story of Matthew. All the people that nobody else wants, Jesus wants. All the rejects, all the ones that people say, oh, tax collectors and sinners, Jesus goes, I'll take them. They're my kind. Because they know that they're sick. They know that they need help. And watch what I can do in them and then through them. Father in heaven, one of the great truths, one of the great realities, is that you don't see like Man sees, as the prophet Samuel so aptly put it. For man looks at the outward, God looks at the heart. Jesus saw into the heart of Levi slash Matthew and knew what he could become, a gift. A gift sent. And what a gift Matthew has been to us, those of us who read his book, and the gift that he has given in his writings and in his life an example. Lord, you love restoring people. You love taking rejects, people who are beat up, mangled by the world, depressed, hopeless, and giving hope to them, extending forgiveness because that's our greatest need, that's your greatest accomplishment. And it's my prayer that you do it again. I believe there are some who have even gathered tonight or are watching online or listening on radio who have not yet committed their lives to Christ and yet Jesus is inviting them to come and be changed and to come and become a gift to the world He will send them to. And for those, Lord, that are here tonight in this room, I pray that You would do that work of convincing. You would do that work of salvaging. If you're here tonight and you've never made a conscious, personal choice to follow Jesus as Lord, as Master of your life, as Savior of your soul, I want to give you that opportunity to do it. If you made a decision at one time, but you're not following Him, you haven't been walking with Him in obedience. You need to come back home to Him tonight and be restored. I want you to be also a part of this. You want to come basically and you want to get right with God tonight as we're praying and so many of us are praying for you, friend. If either of those description fits you, someone who's never personally given their lives to Christ, somebody who's just been disobedient to the Lord and needs to come back home and recommit, I want you to raise your hand up in the air. And as you raise it up, you're saying, I'm coming home. I'm coming back. I want that touch. I want that forgiveness. Just slip your hand up so I can see it as I pray for you tonight. I want you to get up from where you're standing. We want to be a part of this with you. And we want you to publicly identify with Jesus tonight. Jesus called people publicly as you can see. And Jesus is calling you publicly and we'll rejoice with you and we'll pray for you and with you if you raised your hand Even if you didn't but God is drawing you to himself as we sing this song you get up and stand right up here in the front Right now right here Those of you who have walked forward Let me lead you in a word of prayer. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer out loud I want you to pray it after me out loud. Say it from your heart Say it to God. This is you giving your life back to the one who gave you life to begin with. You ready? Let's pray. Lord, I give you my life. I admit I am a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe that Jesus died. That he shed his blood. And that he rose from the dead. And that he did it for me. I turn from my sin. I turn my life to you as my Savior. Be my master in Jesus' name. Amen. You're God's kid. If you prayed that prayer by faith, you belong to Him. This is the beginning of a whole new way of doing things.